The scripture for today's sermon comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is the word of God. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of God to us. Yes, amen. Thank you, Corey. Good morning, church. How are you guys? It's really good to see you. It's good to be with you today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Kramer, one of the pastors here. And if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 2. And then you can also find your place to Exodus chapter 32 and 33. Those are our texts for today. I'm going to pray for you and ask you to pray for me and we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, I pray that today as we look at our longing for peace and Jesus as our peace, that the places of unrest, the places of turmoil, both around us and inside of us would be clear. And I pray that as we see those places where there's chaos, even perhaps chaos on the inside when the outside is really ordered, I pray that in those places we would long for Jesus and that we would turn to Jesus and that we would receive the peace that only he can accomplish. And I pray today that we wouldn't settle for external forms of peace with hearts that are restless. I pray that we would, as St. Augustine said, that we would find our rest in you. And I pray today that you would meet us. Holy Spirit, we love you. We need you. Do whatever you want to do in this room today. We pray this in and through Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, we are participating in this historic part of the church calendar called Advent. Advent is this time where the people of God seek to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. Advent is about identifying with God's old covenant people in longing and waiting for the Messiah. We long for him. We wait for him. We prepare our hearts for him. We remember that every promise of God in the Old Testament finds their fulfillment in Jesus in the new. And as the new covenant people of God, as people that are on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, we also, in the season of Advent, long and wait for the return of Jesus, for all things to be made new, to be given resurrection bodies. Last week, my brother John Reiner walked us through the first moment of Advent, our longing for hope. And we went to the garden where the first man and the first woman enjoyed the very presence of God. Prayer wasn't a religious exercise. Prayer was communion under the very face of God. And they were surrounded by everything they needed. They were surrounded by a world without blemish, without thorns, without thistles, without death, without decay, without entropy. And in the midst of all the good gifts that God gave them, the greatest gift that they were given was God himself. God is their life and was their life. And we see that in a moment of tragic rebellion, as Adam and Eve turned from God, the pervasive power of sin touched everything under the sun. Sin resulted in death, and death is not just a physical state, death is also a spiritual state. Death is to be separated from God. And in the midst of the blackness of death, the darkness of despair, we saw last week that God lit a candle of hope, just as we symbolically did here. 
And that candle of hope was the light that God spoke into the darkness that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That everything that went wrong because of our rebellion would ultimately be made right through this person that we're waiting on. Today, we turn to the second longing of Advent, the longing for peace. Peace is a biblically weighty word. Peace, in the Bible's imagination, is not just the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of everything we need for flourishing. Tim Keller, a pastor from New York City, has done a lot of work around peace, and he defines it like this. It, shalom or peace, means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension possible, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. That definition of peace in the last week has reminded me of Dave Chappelle's opening to his Sticks and Stones comedy special. Love or hate Dave Chappelle, he did something really penetrating and really sad in that special as he opened it up. He said this, Good people of Atlanta, we must never forget that Anthony Bourdain killed himself. Anthony Bourdain had the greatest job in show business. This man flew around the world, ate delicious meals with outstanding people. That man with that job hung himself in a luxury suite in France. They say 2000 parties over, oops, out of time. So tonight I'm going to party like it's 1999. I really think that that's tragic and gripping. Bourdain's life was marked in part by a life of addiction. If you know Bourdain's story, uh, Bourdain traded cocaine for travel. And then he traded the addiction for travel for the addiction of fame. And then he traded the addiction of fame for the addiction of jujitsu. And then he traded jujitsu for an addiction to a toxic relationship. And then ultimately, in the midst of his addiction and compulsion, he hung himself. And I think the thing that's powerful about Bourdain is not just something that those of us that wrestle with addiction can understand. I think the thing that's powerful about Bourdain's life, I think the thing that makes him actually parabolic and prophetic for all of us is that in the midst of a brilliant mind and amazing talent, success and money and fans and fame and people that loved him, at the end of the day, what Bourdain never had was peace. There was no peace there. Under the surface, there was a restlessness, a discontent, a longing that was never met, no matter how hard he tried to fill it. And I think this shows us all just how thin our view of peace is. We're all looking for something external to give us peace. The next relationship, the next success, the next thing that we can check off, the right vacation, the right surroundings, the right house, the right financial security, the right spouse, the right way to lead our families. And all those things, though important, all of the commodities that we can surround ourselves with, the right house, the right clothes, the right cars, even the right friends and family don't get us there. There's something deeper inside of us that's missing that a change of geography can never answer. And that's exactly 
what the book of Exodus is about. The book of Exodus is about wherever we go, finding ourselves there. And no matter how bad and how dark our externals are, the book of Exodus is a reminder that what's far darker than external circumstances is a soul that's restless and apart from God. In the midst of the story of redemption, God made a promise to Abraham, which was another layer of fleshing out that promise that we looked at in the garden last week. God told Abraham that one day he would have an offspring, and through that offspring, God would bring blessing or flourishing or fullness or peace to all the nations. Time goes on, and Abraham's offspring start to multiply. We have Isaac and Jacob, and we have their children, and we have Joseph, who ends up in Egypt, who goes from the dungeon to the palace, and over time, all of Abraham's offspring end up in Egypt. They multiply. They go from being a family to a clan to a nation of multitudes of people, and in the midst of their multiplication, time goes on, and the pharaohs that were favorable to the Jews died, and new pharaohs were installed. And this led to 400 years of enslavement. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 again. During those many days, the kings of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And verse 24 is one of my favorite parts of the entire Old Testament. It's both beautiful and, as we're going to see in a moment, actually kind of scary. Verse 24 tells us that God heard their groanings. He heard. And then it tells us that God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And verse 25 tells us that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God heard. God remembered. God saw. And God knew. And in the midst of God seeing, God actually acts. He's different than the way that we throw that around in our polite society. We say, I see you, but it doesn't really mean anything. When God sees, he actually does something. God takes action to deliver. And the way he does so is he judges the gods of Egypt. That's the plagues. And then he brings Israel through the Red Sea. It's the definitive miracle of the Old Testament. It's the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament. God literally parts the sea and he baptizes his people as they cross through the waters into dry land. And then in the desert, God keeps doing these amazing things for his grumbling people. He feeds them with bread from heaven because they're hungry. And then they complain that they don't have meat, and so God causes quail to cover the ground, and he gives them meat. And then they get thirsty, and they grumble against God again, and instead of turning his back on them, God causes water to flow from a rock to quench their thirst. And in the midst of all that, God then meets with Moses on Mount Sinai, and he gives his people his law. And his law wasn't to restrict their joy, it was to help them live in light of the very character of God, to live a life of flourishing, to take care of each other, to love each other, to actually obey God. He reveals his will to them. And if you know the story at all, what happens next is really tragic. In the very moment that God is working for the good of his people to give Moses his law, God's people are turning again away from God and they're building an idol to worship and give credit for their deliverance to. 
Now I want you to look with me, Exodus chapter 32, let's pick up in this tragic moment. Exodus 32, starting in verse seven. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They made for themselves a golden calf and they've worshiped it and they sacrificed to it and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. There we have that again. God sees, but now look what happens. I've seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. This shines a different light on God's seeing and hearing, doesn't it? In the first instance, in the midst of their groaning for deliverance and their external slavery, they cry out and God sees and he hears and he remembers and he knows and he works an act of deliverance, but now seeing and hearing and knowing exposes just how corrupt the internal slavery of his people really is. And what we see is that the problem was only partially external. This is critical, please hear me say this, in the midst of our culture where I see you is simply to acknowledge and to affirm whatever a person is doing in their life, God sees And what he sees is that Israel is not just the victim of external oppression, but Israel is also the villain that turns from God. Israel is not just enslaved externally by Egypt, Israel is enslaved internally by sin. They can't stop sinning. And even in the very same breath that God delivers them and sees them, God then has to turn and condemn them because they are absolutely incapable of being faithful to God even though he just rescued them, he just flexed for them, he just brought them in to a place of freedom. In the midst of that, what we see is that their problem is not just external, it's internal. They left the slavery of Egypt, but the internal slavery of sin is still hanging on to them. Where Israel goes, there Israel finds himself. And I think that this is really important. I think this is maybe a moment where God would invite you and me to some actual self-evaluation and sobriety because we're just like Israel. We think that a change of circumstance, a change of friends, an update of our marriage, a better job, better vacations, higher standards of living, we think that these external dynamics can actually bring us into freedom, into peace, But the problem is, wherever we go, if you go from the bottom to the top, you're still there. And the person in the mirror is still internally enslaved. And you can get out of bad circumstances, and you can get out of situations that were really painful, and the external darkness can part. But what we find again and again and again is that a change of geography doesn't deal with the real problem. A change of geography doesn't bring peace. And this, I hope, makes us ask a deeper question. Where do we find peace? Not just the absence of conflict, not just the presence of money, not just the presence of comfort or friends or relationships, but how do we find the kind of peace we saw in the garden where God himself was their peace? 
But they were right with him and they could stand in his presence where, listen, those words, God seeing, God hearing, God remembering, and God knowing, how on earth could we get into a situation where that could happen for us and it be good news instead of destruction? How can we be seen and known and heard and not be judged? And what happens in the next turn of Exodus is really telling. It's really telling. I want you to turn with me one chapter over, chapter 33. Look at what happens next. These verses are really the key of the entire book of Exodus. In the midst of this condemnation of Israel's sinful idolatry, the Lord said to Moses, verse one, depart, go up from here, you and the people you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring I will give it, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites. Verse three, go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. Track with what God is saying to Israel. It's crazy. God's saying, I'll give you everything external you need for a life of flourishing. I'll give you freedom from your enemies. I'll give you money. I'll give you prosperity. I'll feed you. I'll clothe you. Everything you think you need to be happy, it'll all be yours in the promised land. But there's one catch. Because of the state of your heart, I won't be with you because for me to be in your presence is for me to, in my righteousness, have to judge you and break you. And I think, like, the thing even for those of us that are followers of Jesus, the thing we have to admit and look at and have the courage to wrestle with is would we take that deal? (laughs) If you could have everything you think you need to be happy, everything that you think is missing, but you didn't have God, would you take that deal? And I think what happens next is really powerful. It's really full of grace, and it's really an invitation. What happens next in verse four is absolutely beautiful. Look what it says. When the people of Israel heard this disastrous word, this disastrous word. They mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked. For if a single moment I should go among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. The people of Israel hear God proposing this idea. You'll have the promised land, you'll have prosperity, you'll have external peace, the absence of conflict, but you won't have me, and in that moment, the children of Israel are awakened, they're sobered, they realize just how terrible that deal would be. That to have everything but not have God is to have nothing. It's not peace, it wouldn't be joy, the land might flow with milk and honey, but there would be no milk and honey in their souls. They would be barren on the inside, even as their land was beautiful and green. And I think that this is really powerful that God again hears their groaning and he remembers his covenant and he sees his people and he knows. And I think what happens is in the midst of this question, take off your ornaments that I may decide what to do with you. In the midst of this question, we have again an advent arrow pointing to the coming of Jesus. (laughs) 
God says, hey, what am I gonna do with you? How do I resolve this conflict that if I'm with you, I have to consume you, but if I'm not with you, you'll never have peace. You'll never know flourishing. You'll never know joy, no matter how much prosperity you have on the outside. And I think what happens in this moment is one of the greatest roadways that leads us to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, in the entire Bible. One agnostic scholar was asked what it would take for him to believe in Jesus. And he said this, if Jesus had fulfilled his promises to bring peace on earth, I would believe. Like, track with that. Here's an agnostic scholar saying, hey, the problem with Jesus is he made promises to bring peace, but he didn't keep it. He looks at the world and equates the conflict and the violence and the hatred with Jesus failing to keep his promises. But what I want you to see today as we take our turn to Jesus in the New Testament, what I want you to see today is that when God saw Israel, he saw their sin and rebellion, and at the very same time, he had compassion and judgment. Compassion and judgment. And what he does in his mercy is he realizes, according to his great redemptive plan, that Israel needs a better Israel. (laughs) Israel needs a better Israel. In the fullness of time, Jesus came and identified with Israel. That's part of Advent. Jesus identifies with Israel. Like Israel, Jesus was exiled to Egypt. Did you ever think about that? Jesus had to run away from persecution and become a refugee in the land of Egypt with his mom and his stepfather. Like Israel, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. The whole 40 days where Jesus was tempted is a parable, a picture of what Israel endured in the wilderness and what Israel failed to do in the wilderness. Like Israel, Jesus becomes the true bread from heaven. They were fed from manna, but scripture says that Jesus claimed to be the real bread that comes from heaven. And just as God split the rock so that he could give his people fresh water to drink, scripture tells us that Jesus is the rock that was split so that we could have living water. When the spear was thrust into the side of Jesus on his death and blood and water flowed, that's a picture of the reality of the rock, the true rock, the real rock that doesn't just quench thirst, but the rock that actually cleanses us of sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. Listen to these words. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. Jesus bore our sin, our idolatry. What drove the children of Israel to make a stupid golden calf in the very same proximity that the living God was delivering them and meeting them and helping them? Just think about that. That's insane. God is there on the mountain. God just rescued him. God has flexed and delivered him. He's destroyed Egypt. He's wiped out their armies. He's parted the Red Sea. And in that context, in the very same frame of film, the children of Israel are like, hey man, give me your earrings. Let's make a God to worship. That's us. We want God's stuff. We don't want God. And we think that peace is found in all these things that are external instead of the one place that true peace is found in the presence of God. And Jesus on the cross 
takes all of that on himself. All of that rebellion, all of that sin, all of that idolatry. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it was written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that flourishing, that shalom, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Here's what I want you to see. God sees Israel and he's moved with both compassion and judgment. He delivers them from Egypt, but then he has to condemn them because they're completely incapable of obedience and worship. He sees them and what he finds is that they don't stack up. Then his perfect son, Jesus, who identifies with Israel, comes, and God sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, but Jesus bears our iniquity and sin, and then on the cross, listen, God turns away from his son, and he doesn't see Jesus. To accomplish the atonement, Jesus was not seen. And he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a breaking of their eternal communion, the Father turns his back on the Son as Jesus bears our iniquity to accomplish the work of redemption. And as Jesus was not seen by the Father, he did so so that you and me could be seen and not be condemned. (laughs) So that we could be seen and accepted. So that we could be seen and delighted in. In our culture, to say I see you is simply to throw out platitudes of affirmation. In God's economy, when he sees, he has to respond in justice. And what Jesus accomplishes is God's just justification so that he can see us and accept us and be our peace once again. What we have in the finished work of Jesus is the reality that peace now in the presence of God in the midst of a broken world is possible. That's what the agnostic scholar doesn't get. That the first work of Jesus is not to immediately accomplish the external markers of peace, a land flowing with milk and honey, the absence of war. That day's coming, but the first work of Jesus on the cross and resurrection was to accomplish the more profound work of peace to make us right with God so that we could be adopted and forgiven and received so that we could be with him again. So that our fellowship that we were made to have where human beings were created to be with God as their very life would again be available to us through the work of Jesus. We have peace now in the presence of God in the midst of a broken world, even as we're surrounded by conflict and war and racism and all kinds of evils, hunger and thirst. Those things are happening across our globe But in this present moment, the fullness of God's kingdom is established on the earth in God's offer to his enemies to be seen and to not be judged. And there's a day coming, which is also a part of Advent, where we long for Christ to return. For swords to be beat into plowshares. For the lion to lay down with the lamb. For reconciliation on a global scale to take place, for all nations, tribes, and tongues to be gathered together before the throne of Jesus, for enemies to be made friends, for wars to cease, for us to be able to make our banner the love of Christ that crushes our petty differences 
and our ridiculous hatred. And we wait for that day. But we wait for that day with peace, with being seen and accepted and loved. So we lit this Advent candle today to long for peace that is both present in the room because Jesus was not seen and coming. And what I want to say to you today is if you're not a follower of Jesus, the offer of God is not to simply bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey without his presence because that's a disastrous word. The offer of God is to actually be with you through the work of Jesus, to receive you. Through the work of Jesus, God sees the very core of our being, the deepest, darkest, most sinful places, and he's able to say, you're mine. We're able to be covered and cleansed because the rock was split and living water poured out of him. So Heavenly Father, I pray today that you would help us even as we long for those external markers of peace, for the world to be made right, for a new heavens and a new earth, I pray that the core dynamic of peace, the greatest peace you've accomplished, which is peace between us and you, would you help us to receive that by grace through faith today? Would you help us to believe that, to enjoy that, to savor that? And all across this room, I pray that we would with Israel in the Old Testament have a moment of sobriety where we can say the absence of conflict and the presence of prosperity without God is a disastrous word. Hey Lord, don't let us settle for gaining the whole world and forfeiting our souls. Deliver us from that outcome. We thank you for being our peace and we thank you that as we come to this table we receive Jesus as the bread of heaven the true bread that comes down.